We're going to pick up where we left off last week. That's, that's what we do. Every week we just continue on. So we're going to be in verses 25 through 33. But I'm actually going to bridge it um, to last week's sermon because that's how expositional preaching works. This message is connected to the previous week's message. And that message was connected to, to the previous week's message because this passage... These words follow the words from last week. So it's always going to just keep that rolling context. But the reason we like here at Crosslight for your Bibles to be in front of you, our Bibles to be open, whether digital or paper, is because, let's just be real, any preacher can get up and say anything he wants. And if your word's not in front of you, if you're not checking it, then we can, be- then we can believe anything that our heart wants us to believe. So the preacher needs to be preaching the text. That's one of my convictions. I hope that's one of the convictions that you take now, five years from now, 15 years from now. Whoever your preacher is, if they're not preaching the text, then they're not preaching the Bible. They might have great Christian thoughts. They might have biblical thoughts and good advice, but they're not preaching Scripture. They're not giving you anything that you actually need. Because John 17, 17 says, Father, sanctify them in the truth. And what is truth? Your words. So any preacher who gives you anything besides the Word is not leading you into sanctification. So with that said, we're in John 16, verse 25. And it says this. Jesus is speaking. He said, I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. And that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. Why? Because for the Father Himself loves you. Because you've loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Oh, now you're speaking plainly not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. And look how Jesus answered. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone, for the Father is with me. I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Lord God, your word open before us. Do what no preacher or speaker can. And Lord, root it deep into us. Help us to focus and to love Your Word more and more. And Lord, may we glory in Christ. Amen. Okay, so this passage connects very directly to last week's passage. And, and we're going like to connect to last week so that this week makes sense. But we have three big things that we're looking at this week. Number one, the enlightenment of the disciples. Like they get it. There's finally that light bulb moment that we've been waiting for. They've been walking with him for three years and they seem pretty dense many times. Even whenever he plainly says, here's what's happening. And then they turn around and they don't get it again. So we're going to look at the enlightenment of the disciples. We're going to look at the danger for the disciples. And then number three, the really cool part, the victory of Jesus. I'm going to tell you on the front end and I'll tell you later. John 16, 33 is one of my favorite verses throughout the entire Bible. Like, I know John 3.16 is fantastic. I know that Romans 3.23 and 6.23, and everybody loves Romans 8 if they're Reformed. But what I'm telling you is John 16.33 is my favorite. 
it's underlined it's double underlined it usually has multiple colored pins because every time i come back to it i'm reminded of of two really big truths there will be trouble in this world any sort of christianity or profession of faith that tells you that you will not have trouble and you will not suffer in this world is not biblical you will have tribulation you'll have tribulation with friends you'll have tribulation at work you'll have tribulation in life you'll have tribulation um, in your family but then jesus says but take heart I've overcome the world. So every aspect of tribulation that you and I have, that we walk through and that we face, He has overcome that aspect of the world. So I love it. It reminds me, I'm going to suffer, so quit being surprised when it happens, whenever it does happen. And number two, I don't have to despair whenever tribulation comes because He's already overcome that. So we're going to look at that at the very end. All right, last week though, we, we broke down verses 16 through 24. And we had three main things we looked at. And I, I want to review those as a way of talking about this first point, the enlightenment of the disciples. Why in the world is it a big deal that they are so enlightened? Because if you read last week, last week's passage, or you go listen to that sermon, these guys, they're just confused. And that was our first point. The disciples were confused. They're, he's sitting there, Jesus says, in verses 16 through 24, hey, in a little while I'm going to go away. In a little while I'm going to come back. And they're going, how? Why? That doesn't make any sense. Are you sure? And so Jesus talks through, to them through that process. So they were confused. We talked about that. I'm going to look at that again. We talked about the power of transformation. And then we talked about the union that we now have. Those three subpoints that we're going to do very quickly are all part of the enlightenment of the disciples now. Like hopefully we can rejoice in that and what we see. So, look at that. The disciples' confusion from last week. We talked about how how they didn't understand it, but now look at verse 30. Verse 30 connects for us more to that. And look at their confusion. It's now turned to understanding. There's enlightenment. Verse 30, the disciples say to Him, Now we know, now we know that you, Jesus, know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Remember where we were last week? They're like, we don't get it. And we looked into why, and they didn't get it because really this was key. They didn't understand who Jesus really was and how He would establish His kingdom. They knew the Messiah would come. They knew that He was professing to be the Messiah, but for them, just like all the other Jews, the Messiah would come and set up an etern- or he would set up a kingdom. And in this kingdom, He would break the oppression of the Romans and all those who hated the Jews but this kingdom would be set up and they thought it was going to be on earth. And so whenever Jesus says, I'm the Messiah, like I'm here, I'm the son of man, they're like, fantastic, great. You're going to reign. And he's like, I absolutely am. By the way, I'm about to die. And they're like, whoa. Because it didn't make sense to them. How in the world could the Messiah who was going to set up this reign and who was going to be their king forever if he was going to do that and they believed he was, then how in the world could he really die and still set up a kingdom? And we looked at that and that's in last week's sermon, but but just in a nutshell, they didn't understand who Jesus really was. Probably the same problem that you and I will have in moments in our life. And they didn't understand how he would establish his kingdom. So just three quick thoughts from last week. He wasn't coming to set up an earthly kingdom. He was coming to set up an eternal kingdom. So it was a much bigger scope. He didn't come to say, I'm going to set up 
an earthly kingdom right here and I'm going to reign right there forever. He came and he said, oh, you don't get it. It's not just an earthly kingdom. It's an eternal kingdom. And one day that heaven is going to come to earth and that eternal kingdom will reign on earth. In other words, you have no idea what kind of kingdom I'm about to set up. It's much bigger than you think. He wasn't coming for the Jews alone. He was coming for people from every tribe, every tongue, every people group, from every era, every time, throughout all of creation. So He wasn't just coming for the Jews, which is what they thought. He said, by the way, Jews, I'm coming for you, but I'm coming for the Gentiles everywhere throughout all time. My kingdom is much bigger than you even understand, and I have to die for that. And y'all, He was not just coming to break the reign of the the Romans and the oppression of the Romans in this context right here. He said, I'm coming to break slavery and oppression for all my people wherever they are. Whatever sin they're enslaved to, I'm breaking the oppression. Whatever sin is taking them to death, I'm freeing them from death. And so they did not understand. And their their confusion was valid. Just decades and hundreds and hundreds of years They've been thinking the Messiah is coming and whenever He comes, He's going to be like King David and He's going to sit on that throne and He's going to sit in that temple and He's going to be our God and we're going to, we're going to be with Him forever and ever because His, His uh, reign will never end. And Jesus came and He said, I am that King and this King is going to die. In a little while I'm going to die and you're not going to see me anymore. And then in again, in a little while, you're going to see me again and we're going to be together. And so they were confused. How did all that reconcile? How did they piece all this together? And so we looked at that last week. Their their confusion was valid for them, but their confusion was because they didn't understand who Jesus was and what He was doing. You and I are often going to be confused and bewildered in life if we do not remember who Jesus was and what He's doing. He is the unending King of all eternity, and He is bringing His people home. That's who He is. What's He doing? He's reconciled you and me, but He's reconciling anyone who calls on His name. And He uses people like us. And He uses um, moments in our life to, to highlight the Gospel so that others can see that He is a good God. This is not how you and I would write the redemption of the world. It's exactly how a wise and holy king would. We looked at the transforming power of belief. Look again at verse 30. Last week we talked about the transforming power of their belief. Now look at verse 30 from this week. Now we know, they said, that you know all things and you do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. You can actually kind of hear the joy there. There's exclamation marks in the Bible for that. Because they're sitting there, last week, they're sitting there scratching their heads and they're like, okay, like, we kind of get it a little bit but you're Jesus, so we're going to go ahead and say, okay, even though we don't get it. And now they're going, we get it. We get it. You're him. Like, you're the guy. We get it. You don't even have to, like, tell us anymore. We're not going to question you. We don't have any more questions. We're just going to say, we get it. You come from the Father. You're the Son. You're the one. We get it. And, like, there's this moment of joy. Connect that to last week. Jesus told them, hey, you're about to have sorrow. And your sorrow is going to last for a moment. And the sorrow he's talking about is bigger than this proclamation. The sorrow he was talking about is, I'm about to die. You're going to see me arrested. You're going to see me beaten. 
You're going to see me falsely accused and then you're going to see me murdered and bleed out on a tree. He's like, you're going to watch all that and you're going to have sorrow and the world is going to rejoice because they hate me. But your sorrow, like this moment right here, your sorrow is suddenly going to flip into joy. My death which brings you sorrow is going to be my death which brings you joy. And so last week he told them to consider a woman in labor. He said, consider a woman in labor. She has sorrow whenever her moment has come. There's anguish and there's pain and there is sorrow. And I'm looking around at moms and I'm saying, I know, I'm only saying words. I don't get it, okay? But I get the idea here. But there's sorrow in this moment. And when she has given birth, there is joy that this baby, which caused sorrow in this moment, has become the baby which brings joy in this life. That's what Jesus said last week, that you have a sorrow that is going to be transformed, not substituted. There's not sorrow for this baby right now, and then all of a sudden the doctor comes in and says, by the way, here's another baby that's going to bring you joy. But there's this transformative power of the sorrow into joy. And that's what we see right here. They get it. Their confusion is transformed into joy. They just heard in the very same five to ten minutes, the same Jesus saying, I'm about to die, and I'm going to come again. And they're like, what? And then he says, I'm coming. I've come from the Father. I'm going to the Father. And now all of a sudden there's a moment they're like, oh, we get it. Y'all, their, their sorrow and their confusion has been transformed into joy just for this one moment. And so that's a, that's a pretty cool thing to see like that connection. Because here's what happens. We preach a passage this week. We preach a, preach a passage next week. We preach a passage the next week. We forget that it's one narrative. It's one story. So in this five to ten minute span of speaking to Jesus, there's this enlightenment that happens. I was talking to... Well, I've talked to people throughout, throughout the years. Because um, Chas and I used to have... Uh, we would call it the cross wall at our house. We had this, this stairwell and we would have crosses hanging um, um, all over this wall. And, and I had someone say it then... And I, I remember it very clearly. They hadn't even seen the wall. It was just, they were talking about the cross. And someone said to me, they're like, why do Christians love the cross so much? I mean, it's a sign of suffering and shame. Like it was the death of Jesus. Why in the world would somebody want to decorate with that? And I'm going to be honest, I don't know how I answered it then. But a few weeks ago, I had somebody else who said, we were just talking. And this person said, yeah, I don't understand like why decorate with the cross why well, keep looking at it because it was the death and i was like oh i see the total opposite see i don't see the death here i've been transformed by the i see the life like the cross does it does remind me of the death but it also reminds me of the conquering of christ this is the way that god would choose to reconcile me to him like that cross every time i see it is not just a symbol of death anymore for Christians. It's a symbol of life and redemption. It reminds us that our sin was so deep that a holy God had to come, and that's how I am alive again. So I don't see the sorrow of the cross so much. I see the joy of the cross. That's what Jesus was saying last week. That's what they're beginning to grasp right now. And then last week we looked at their union. Jesus told them that, they would, that He would not have to pray for them, but they would be able to pray to the Father. And God would hear them because God loves them. And right now in their declaration in verse 30 again, they said, now we know that you know all things and you do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. 
this is where they fully acknowledge again without without any stuttering or any any tripping up that Jesus is from God like their scope is completely clear and whenever they say we know that you're from God and we fully believe you our faith hinges on our belief y'all their profession of belief ushers them and ushers us into the presence of God forevermore I'm just going to tell you we take that for granted I know we do because I do. We take for granted that because Jesus died for us, we have access to the Father. Like the Creator who speaks stars into existence and who said, let the earth awake today, that God sent His Son to die for you and for me so that we could talk to our God. But we've grown up in it. We've done this for years. Like this is so normal for us. We take it for granted that Jesus had to die for that. Jesus had to die to redeem you from your sins. He had to be the sacrificial atonement for you and me. But He did it, and we have access to the Father. Whenever we are sitting there and we say, God, I pray, do you realize the enormity of that moment? That you, who were living and born in sin and had no hope of holiness you actually get to say, my God, I love you. And He hears your voice because of Jesus. Like, it's huge. Sometimes we forget to marvel at the simplicity of our faith. We get so used to it. They get it in this moment. They're like, oh, we get it. And so the point, the first point of all this was to really review last week and to bring it all together into this week that they get it. There's an enlightenment. That's what's going on in those first few passages. If you're ever reading the Bible and you're going through, you're like, well, what does that mean? I don't get it. Then, then talk to other believers. Um, listen to preachers who are going to preach the Word and it should be explained to you. But Jesus did something that's, that's I hate to say this way, that's much more than just dying for your sins. He did something much more than just saving you from hell. He brought perfect unity reconciled you to a holy God and you will never be apart from Him forever and ever. That's it. He did something much bigger than what we put on a t-shirt and a coffee mug. Something much bigger than what we talk about in VBS. He shifted our cosmic and our eternal scope and He took us from darkness and He put us into light. And He had to be crushed for this. He had to die for this. It's enormous. But we... We're really simple people and we like to make things really comfortable and we like to make sure that we can understand them. And so we usually do this. Why did Jesus die? Well, He died for my sins. Yeah, He did. He was crushed for your sins. He was beaten for your sins. But you know what? He didn't just die for your sins. He died for your sins and then He gave you new life and He picked you up and He... He made you new and He's carrying you along the way and He's bringing you home and He presents you holy and blameless before a holy God. It's incredible. It's amazing. Listen to what Acts 2, uh, 23 says. Let me scroll down to it. Uh, I scrolled right past it, sorry. Okay, I don't have it right here. I'll get back to it later. It'll come in. But it was the perfect will of the Father to do this so that you and I could gather here today. It's amazing. Number two, what's going on in this passage? We saw the enlightenment of the disciples. Number two, the danger of the disciples. 
you would think that this is a moment, like a, a big moment for Jesus. They finally get it. They seem pretty pumped about it. You ever been pretty pumped about something? You know, like, I change out the, the light switches in the house, and, and I do that, and then Chas walks in, and I'm pretty proud of it. She's like, why didn't you change that one? I didn't, I didn't have that switch. I need one more three-way light switch. There's kind of that moment right here. Because they say, we get it. We believe like you really are the Messiah. And, the, and, and we know we're not going to see you for a while, but you said you're coming back. And whenever you come back, like the work is finished and your reign will be forever. Like we get it. And look how Jesus responds. His response is... Do you really? He says, do you now believe? And then he's going to tell them why their belief better be secure. He says, do you now believe? Behold, verse 32, behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come. It's right now when you will be scattered, each one to his own home, and you will leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone, for the Father is with me. I've said these things to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. And that's where we're going to stop in verse 33. But there's this moment where he's basically saying, you, you do believe. Do you really? Like Because there's about to be a depth. There's about to be a challenge. And he seems to be saying it's about to be really incredibly hard. Because like he tells them, you're about to be scattered. You're about to all go back to your own homes. We've been walking life together for three years. And where I've walked, you've walked. We've laughed together. We've wept together. We've done ministry together. And do you really believe me? Because it's about to get really hard. You're all actually about to scatter. And if you don't believe in me, then you will not come back from your scattering. He says you're going to scatter to the degree that you're actually going to abandon me. You're going to be so terrified in the next few moments that you will abandon me. And you're going to go back to your own home. And all the tribulation that has been poured on me because people hate me as Jesus... All the tribulation and persecution is about to move from me and it's going to be poured out onto you because you love me and follow me. Do you really believe? Now, look how he follows. He's like, by the way, I told you all that so that you can have peace. Don't worry. So what do you do with that? I mean, what do you, he just tells them how grim it's about to be so that me, you may have peace. And he's telling them how hard it's about to be. And he says, but don't worry, have peace. Here's why. Forget us right now, okay? Just, just forget us. Just think about those disciples in that moment. They're walking along the road probably at this point. They were in the upper room. They had the Lord's Supper. And now they're walking along most likely. Maybe they've come to a, part, or to a point. Small group of them. And he says, you're about to be terrified and you're going to leave me. You're going to scatter. But I want you to have peace. Now think about them in that moment that the one that they've walked so closely with is about to die. I've already told you. They're going to watch him be falsely arrested, falsely accused. There's going to be a mock trial. His beard's going to be plucked out. They're going to cram thorns onto his head. They're going to clothe him in a robe after they've already whipped him with a cat of nine tails. So what that means is that they're going to watch him be publicly scourged and beaten. This, the cat of nine tails would be a leather handle with leather strands and there would be bones and bits of glass or metal at the very end. Jesus would be bound like this around a pole. They're going to watch him be whipped as that cat of nine tails wrapped around the side. These executioners and punishers, they knew exactly what they were doing. This was their job. The cat of nine tails would rip around the side. It would rip 
the, or I'm sorry, the, the metal, the glass would dig into the flesh and the executioner would not like just relax it. He would then rip, which would cause all of that glass, bone, metal to rip that flesh open. They knew that if they hit you 40 times or whipped you 40 times with it, they could kill you. So they watched that happen to Jesus. And they're going to watch a, clo- a robe be, be clothed on him. And then they're going to watch that robe be ripped off. Y'all, this morning, okay, I'm a baby. But I've got a scratch right here. This morning, we're on our way, and I reached down, and I didn't mean to, and I scratched it. Praise the Lord, I have a compassionate wife. He endured such suffering that we cannot imagine. For your sake and my sake. But imagine if you were them and you watched that happen to him in that moment. No longer just looking back at history. But in that moment he says, half peace. And here's why half peace has such weight for them. He basically just told them that everything that that would cause you to be terrified, everything that would cause you to wonder at what's going on, and the goodness of God, all the murder that you're about to, and the evil that you see afflicted and poured onto me, have peace because I'm in absolute control right now. Imagine the peace that would sink into that. With all the hardship you're about to watch, all the pain and the suffering, Jesus is saying it's not beyond my scope. I'm telling you to have peace in me because it's going to be okay. That the work that I'm doing is actually for your good. Have such faith and belief that in the chaos of the moment, whenever it seems like evil is winning, have such peace because I have overcome the world. Like this is momentary. I'm bigger than this moment. Everything is functioning exactly as the Father wants to. So don't despair. Now what can you and I glean from that? So don't worry about us. But you, you see the weight. Like to say have peace to you and me, we're like, okay, everything's going to be fine and hunky-dory. But imagine what it would hear like to, to hear him say, have peace in that moment, the darkest moment. So, but now I'm going to say, look at us. What can we glean right here? You know what this moment reminds me of in the Bible? It reminds me that God is sovereign. Okay? And you're like, I know, we say sovereign a lot. I get it. No. Y'all, he's either sovereign of all things, which means he rules all things, everything is his. He's either sovereign of all things or he's not sovereign at all. Because sovereign means the sovereign ruler, the one who controls all things. He's either sovereign of all things or he's not sovereign of anything. It means he has absolute authority over absolutely everything in all of creation from all time. Everything is in his grasp. So whenever... Whenever families get hard, you understand that it's still in His scope of power. Whenever, whenever married life gets hard, you understand that God is still sovereign. And it's not, it's not overwhelming and it, it's not dead. It can be brought back. That He has the power to do that. We understand that when wars happen, God is still sovereign. We understand that whenever churches can't meet, God is still sovereign. We understand that whenever we lose jobs, God is still sovereign. We understand that whenever the chaos of this world rises up, God is still in absolute control. We need to have peace. It does not mean that the hurt is not real. It does not mean that we cannot cry out to Him with real tears and say, God, what are you doing? Don't forgive me. It means this, that we have hope because He's overcome the world. 
It means no moment in our life is so far gone that God cannot look into it and bring redemption from it. So I have hope. They had hope. He said have peace. We do too. Y'all, from the beginning, Genesis 3.15, that's, a, that's about as early as we can get in the Bible. And if, if you want to look there and, and mark it, there's a really fancy word that you could write there. 3.15 is the Proto-Evangelicum. I know, you probably said that word yesterday whenever you went to the store. Proto-Evangelicum. It's the first gospel proclamation. It's the first time in Scripture that we see there will be a Messiah. That there will be Jesus. Jesus was not plan B. Jesus was plan A. Or the only plan. I don't know how the best to say that, to be quite honest. I'm, I'm too simple. But Jesus wasn't plan B because there was sin in the world and this king and this judge and and this prophet didn't work out, so I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm going to bring in Jesus. We're going to bring you in from the sidelines. Jesus was plan A from the beginning. It's in Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15, God's talking to the serpent. He says, I, God, will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he, that offspring, that one, the very one, he will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In other words, God told Satan in the beginning, he said, by the way, I'm sending one and He's going to crush you. When Jesus went to the cross, He crushed Satan's head. So Genesis 3.15 lays out, and we see Acts 2.22, I'm sorry, 2.23, Acts chapter 2, verse 23. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. All of it, was in the scope of Jesus' redemptive work. And all of what you face in life, Scripture is very clear. Nothing overcomes us. God will not let us be moved from His hand. He will hold us. So have peace. It's worth noting before we move to our final, final point, it's worth noting that every disciple who heard those words died, martyred, except for John. But John suffered plenty. He's the John who wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Revelation. He suffered. But all the others had such deep-seated, unshakable joy in who Jesus was and the work of Christ that they went to their death professing His name. I mean, what would, what would churches really look like? What would culture really look like if we did start to live with such unshakable joy like that? God, I'm going to live in this way and I know I'm going to be persecuted. You know what Scripture says? All, that word all, all who desire to live a godly life will face persecution. Why? Because to live in such a way that would glorify God will cause us to live in such a way that the world does not like. We don't have to invite it. We just live out the convictions of our faith. We don't need protest signs. We don't need street corners. We just live the life that God told us to live. And because we are, the spiritual darkness of this world will rally His troops against us and we will face persecution. I know that that does not feel good to talk about in the American church. Right? Love Jesus. He will bless us. He will protect us. He will keep us. And we all get our own mansion with streets of gold. You get your mansion. You get your streets of gold. 
but heaven's just the place. Christ is the reward. One day, the Christ who died for you will be with you. The God who created you will be the Son over you, and He will wipe every tear from your eye. But in this world, you will have tribulation. Everyone who desires to live a godly life will face persecution. Now, you can go down another trail where we're not going to go in this sermon, but well, what if we haven't faced persecution? If we haven't faced persecution, are we living a godly life? It's another sermon for another day, but you know what? That's also just a, a conversation you have with God. I'm not saying that if you haven't faced persecution that you're not living a godly life. You know what? We also see God gives favor to His people. He gives good rapport to His people. He protects them. He leads kings and armies away from His people because that's what God wants to do. So if you haven't faced persecution, no, you're not a woeful um, you're not a pathetic Christian because you haven't been persecuted. Maybe you profess even more the goodness of God. Thank you that as I live the life you've called me to live, you've protected me to live it. Does that make sense? In this world, y'all, you're going to have tribulation. Write it down. When tribulation, when suffering and pain come, don't be like, why is that? Instead, focus on what we're going to do in verse 3. Or I'm sorry, in, in part 3. Focus on that while you have that tribulation, take heart, have hope, because Christ overcame the world. Okay, we're going to do some, some Bible Olympics here. We're going to be flipping back and forth because I want you to see some passages. We're going to do them as quick as we can. Um, and sometimes I'll say flip there. Sometimes I'll say just write this down. Verse 33, one more time. I've said these things to you that in me, in Jesus, you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And I've told you, this is one of my, my favorite verses. Because here's what I hear. So Ricky, don't worry. When the tribulation comes, don't worry because I've overcome the world. And I'm looking at Cross Life Fort Smith, those, those of you I get to walk alongside you in life, four quick reflections of what it means that he overcame the world. Okay, quick, not 15 minutes a piece, but like 13 and a half, okay? Four quick reflections. What exactly did Jesus overcome? Y'all, he overcame Satan. First thing, he overcame Satan. I don't think many Christians understand this. Look at Matthew chapter 12. So flip to Matthew chapter 12, and there's a really cool thing that happens, and it just gets breezed over pretty quickly. And depending on how you read this, and I won't indoctrinate you to my view, but depending on how you read this, probably also determines how you how you view the millennium. Um, you know, pre-millennial, post-millennial, all-millennial. Some of you are like, what is that? Don't worry about it. Just be like Spurgeon. Be a pan-millennialist. It all pans out in the end. Okay? It's going to be fine. But there's a really cool verse. Matthew 12, and I believe this also happens in like Mark 3. It's just reworded a little bit different. Matthew 12, let's just pick up in verse 24. Jesus has been doing ministry, by the way. He's casting out demons. Scripture says, but when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it's only by, by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. In other words, he's got a demon in him. That's how he's able to do these miracles. So, knowing their thoughts, he, Jesus, said to them, 
And he's going to tell them how illogical what they just said is. They're like, the only way you do the powers and the miracles that you do is because you have a demon. So knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, every kingdom divided itself is laid waste and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your own sons cast them out? So in other words, he says two things. Number one, Satan's not going to cast out Satan. This demon's not going to cast out another demon because now the kingdom is at war with itself. That's illogical, Pharisees. And the other one is, why is it okay for your sons, the priests, to cast out demons but not me? Mic drop. Sorry? Mic drop. Mic drop, exactly. He has a moment whenever he just says, you make no sense. And he's doing this in a public forum, by the way. And now look what he says. Verse 28 and 29. But if, if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, so if it's true that I do this by God, then the kingdom of heaven has come to you. The kingdom of God is here. That's cool. But now 29. Think on this. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder its goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder the house. You know what he just said? In other words, he just said, I have bound Satan. This is Satan's kingdom. This is the prince of the power of the heirs. This is his kingdom. And he's like, how can anyone go steal or plunder from the strong man unless first you bind up the strong man? So Jesus is saying, you know how I can do what I do? Because I bound Satan. And now I'm taking everything I want from him right now. I'm giving the lost faith. I'm giving the blind sight. Those who couldn't hear, they can hear. I'm doing everything that I want to do because I took Satan and I bound him and he can't stop my kingdom from reigning. So he has overcome Satan. In case that's not enough, listen, just listen to Hebrews 2.14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise, Jesus, likewise partook the same things that through death, here it is, he, Jesus, might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Hebrews 2.14 says that Jesus, through his death, would destroy Satan. And why is this important for you and me? Because Satan's not the end all. We need to have a healthy respect of who he is and what he's doing, how he is against God. But at the same time, we don't live in fear of Satan because Satan's already been bound. He's already been defeated. There is no victory for Satan coming. Right now, he's in his death throes. I'm not a hunter, but I grew up with hunters and I hunted whenever I was little. And, and what I knew whenever I'd go with my grandpa and we'd go up to the cabin is you would shoot the deer, but then whenever you shoot the deer, it doesn't just fall over dead. What's it do? It runs. You've got to follow that trail because the deer's not going to die immediately. It's going to be a process of death. Y'all, that's where Satan is right now. He's in the process of his death. He's been dealt the mortal wound. His head has been crushed. And so right now, it's kind of like watching someone, this is kind of grim, but watching someone drown, and he's just reaching for everything he can to bring it down with him. So it's actually pretty relieving that right now, we do not have to live in fear of the devil. He's already been bound. Christ has already come. So then we also have to be careful whenever we say the devil made me do it. No, he didn't because he doesn't have the power. We chose to do it. It says in, uh, in Peter, 
that the, the, the devil is a hungry lion seeking those whom he can devour. So stand firm. He's got power and he's coming after believers, but he can't overcome believers. He has no authority to overcome us. Here's something else um, that, that Jesus overcame. He overcame death. And I know you say you know that, but listen to 1 Corinthians 15, 54-55. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. And you all know this part. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? In Christ's death, He put death to death. You and I, living long ago, probably would have had a lot more mystery than what we have right now. We should have probably feared it a whole lot more. Because death had power. Satan had power. Death had power. And in Satan's death, though, I'm sorry, in in Jesus' death, He put an end to that death. When I die, and I believe scripturally speaking, when I die, my eyes will close here and I will wake up and I will see my God face to face. He put death to death. There is no reigning power that we have to face whenever we leave this world. Y'all go ahead and turn to 2 Timothy 1. 2 Timothy 1. So wherever you are, you're going to start turning to your right. You're going to get to the end of the Bible. 2 Timothy. We're close, I promise you. Second Timothy chapter 1, verse 9 and 10 says this, He has saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but by His own purpose and by the grace that He granted us in Christ Jesus before time began. And now He has revealed this grace through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus. Watch this who abolished death and illuminated the way to life and immortality through the gospel. You and I will, quote, die in this world, but you and I will not die. There is no shadowy land that we go to. There is no purgatory that we have to wade through. We sleep here. We rise to life because whenever we said that we are Jesus's, whenever we said, I will passionately pursue you my entire life, He said, it won't just be your entire life. Passionately pursue me your entire life and then your eternal life, I'm going to be with you forever. There is sleeping in this world, waking in eternity. He overcame Satan. He overcame death. Y'all, He overcame our sin. And I don't mean in a general way. I mean He overcame our sin. Everybody has a sin. Everybody has sin in general. And everybody's got a sin that it's going to nag them, that will keep coming back up. It just seems to resurface, and we don't know why. And as soon as you defeat that sin and it's gone, and you're like, oh, I have victory in Jesus, you turn around and it's like there's a new sin that you've got to keep contending with. Right? Nobody wants to comment on that. Everybody's like, just keep going. Keep moving the message along. But we know it's true. If we don't know what what sins are, then we just read the Bible and it lays it out. And those passages make us uncomfortable. You're going to get really uncomfortable whenever it's an expositional sermon and you see that the next week's passage is a list of sins that we're supposed to avoid and forsake and do away with. And all of a sudden, we might be tempted to be like family vacation next Sunday. We're going to be out of town because we don't want to hear our sins preached about. Right? Here's what I'm going to say. No sin can overtake you and enslave you because you have Christ. I'm not being flippant. 
I'm not trying to shortcome your, or like short, uh, I'm not trying to make your struggle with that sin any lighter. I'm just telling you, there is no sin which can overtake you because Christ has over, already overcome the world. James says that we sin because we choose to sin. That there is a sin that, that we manifest because our desires in us kind of lure us into it. And then like a fish, we bite the lure and then we get reined in and we get pulled in. But we're told that He has overcome our sin. First Peter 2.24 says, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. But listen to the next five to six words. By His wounds you have been healed. You have absolutely sinned. And so have I. We have absolutely transgressed the holiness of who God is. We are wretchedly and hopelessly laid humble before Him because we've all sinned. But Christians, we don't live in the guilt of it. We live in the joy of it because by His wounds you have been healed. Right? So whatever that sin, whenever it comes up, whenever it's going to come up, whatever that trigger is, find something that is much more satisfactory than the sin of this moment. Just look to Christ. Right? C.S. Lewis says that it's not that we're so hard to, to be satisfied. We're not too hard to satisfy. We're way too easily satisfied as creation. We'd rather eat mud pies in this moment. And in this moment, we forget that there's a feast inside. Chas and I went out to eat last night. And uh, I know it's a really simple analogy, but I was eating snacks that afternoon. I was eating chips and stuff like that because it was just like a weak moment and I like salt and I'm doing that. But there was this moment where I'm like, wait a second, I get to go out and eat later. Like I get to have like a like this meal with my wife and we get to go on this date. And I didn't know where we were going to go, but I knew it was going to be like good food. I put the bag of chips up, right? Because I understood in that moment that... I'm going to go pay for this meal. It's going to be a lot better than a bag of chips. So this is a really simple analogy to say, y'all, that's a lot of what sin is. Sin is indulging in the bag of chips whenever there is a great feast that's being prepared for us. And we lose the, the blessing and the richness of that meal and that satisfaction because we're dabbling over here in a bag of chips. He has overcome sin. First Peter says, whatever your sin is, just die to it. Die to your sin because He has healed you by His stripes. Y'all turn to Isaiah 53, middle of your Bible, Isaiah 53. He overcame sin. Here's a chief way I found to overcome the sin and the temptation that's going to arise. Whether it's gossip, whether it's greed, whether it's, whether it's lust or pride, whatever that is. Here's what I found. Keep looking at the Savior. Just keep looking at Him and what He did. Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5. Surely, surely He took on our infirmities or sins and carried our sorrows, yet we considered Him stricken by God, struck down and afflicted. Y'all, verse 5, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him, and by His stripes we are healed. 
Is your temptation real? Absolutely. Is it going to try to lure you away? Absolutely. Is that sin that is vying for your attention and affections real? Absolutely. But there's a sure reality that is much bigger than this world. Christ said, I have overcome the world. And that includes your sins. You don't have to turn there, but Romans 4.25, He was delivered over to death for our trespasses and He was raised for our justification. Do you know what that word justification means? Y'all, He was laid low because of our sins. And it says He was raised high so that He could justify us. To be justified with that term means kind of in a court sense. Imagine you're a lawyer or the judge or whoever's interceding for you says they're justified. They're, they're actually in good standing. They're not guilty anymore. They're innocent. Yes, they, they did all of those things, but they are declared not guilty anymore. In His death, He paid for our sins. In His resurrection, He justified us. And He sits at the right hand of God and He intercedes for the saints. Just like the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, so Christ intercedes for us. And He says, you can't hold it against them anymore, all their sin, because it was laid on me. And because it was laid on me, you have to declare them just. That's who we are right now. Whatever sin has been so near you, you have been declared just Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ. You've been declared justified by Jesus Christ. Last thing, and I want you to turn there. It's our last verse. I want you all to see, whenever he said in this life, you'll have tribulation. In other words, hard things are going to come. Jesus has already overcome Satan. He's already overcome death. He's already overcome sin. And then this last one, he has overcome all of creation. Romans chapter 8, verse 35. Like, yeah, but you didn't mention sickness. You didn't mention famine. You didn't mention pandemics. You didn't mention floods. You didn't mention, um, what if I get robbed and I'm left with nothing and I'm naked now? Like, Ricky, you didn't mention any of those things. So here we go. He's overcome everything that you and I will encounter. And then we're going to pray. Romans 8, verse 35 through 39 written to believers. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As is written, for your sake, God, we are, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Verse 37, No, in all of these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure, Paul writes, that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the disciples had this moment whenever they say, Oh, oh, we get it. We totally get it. You are the Christ. You're the Messiah. And everything is going to be okay. And we believe in you. And Jesus said, good, because things are about to get really, really tough. And when they get tough, you will abandon me. But I want you to have hope and peace because whatever it is that's going to come at you disciples and whatever it is that's going to come at my people in this world, I want you to have peace because I have overcome the world. 
and four quick categories for what he's overcome. We no longer have to fear Satan. We no longer have to fear death. We no longer have to be enslaved to sin. We no longer have to worry about what the world brings us because neither death nor life, angels or rulers, things present in this world or things to come later, no power, no height, nor depth, nor anything, anything else in all of creation, cross life. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can undo what He has eternally done. Praise the Lord. Next week, we pick up in John 17, and we're going to read the whole prayer. It's, it's Jesus' high priestly prayer. And we're going to read that whole prayer and look at the four big categories. But these are the final words of Jesus. And in His final words, He looked at His disciples and He said, You will have tribulation, but I've already overcome it. Have peace. Same thing I want to tell you pastorally. You're going to have tribulation. Life's going to get hard. Praise the Lord we have one another. But praise the Lord that He's already overcome it. It's not pointless. It's not the end. Let's pray. Lord God, I know that I spent many words this morning. Whatever, whatever can fall away of my voice and my words so that Your Word remains and Your truth remains and Your comfort remains and Your conviction remains. Lord, let my voice and the memory of what I say fade away and Your Word stand alone. Lord, so that Your Spirit, Your Word in us, Lord, speaks that which we need to hear. But Jesus, thank You that You condescended to us, that You took on flesh, and that You who had no sin and had no guilt, You died for us. And now You declare us righteous. Thank You. Amen.